Good morning. Let's open systematic theology this morning with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Teach us about Christ this morning. Help us to understand what it means that he took on flesh, that he became incarnate. Help us to not get that wrong, but to get it right according to scripture, to know it well, at least the main points and some of the verses to go to, and help us to recall it in time of need. We pray this for your glory. Amen. So we're finally there, the incarnation. We've been talking about pre-incarnation, the pre-incarnate Christ, but we're finally to the incarnation. And even though incarnation means to take on flesh, we're not going to get to the humanity of Christ today. We're still going to look at his deity and what it means that he took on flesh. Before that, let's do a book giveaway. So let's see. Let's see what we went over last week. Remind myself what the schedule says here. Okay. Who can cite a passage other than Isaiah 53 or the Psalms that talks about the prophecies of the coming Christ? That's Isaiah, but not Isaiah 53. What is it? What, you know the chapter? Isaiah 9? 6 or somewhere in there? Okay, come get Devoted to God's Church by Sinclair Ferguson. Core values for church fellowship. You just have to report back to us if it's something that's valuable to you and tell others to get it. Market for Sinclair Ferguson. I do book giveaways every, every so often. Just keep everybody coming, you know. They don't, they don't want y'all to sleep in. Little incentive, right? It's a godly incentive, you know. Sometimes people, they try to get very spiritual and say, you know, the only reason to live a holy life is so we can be before the Lord forever. Well, that's true, right? But there's a lot of other reasons the Bible gives too. A lot of other incentives, like you don't want to burn in hell. That's not the only reason we live a holy life, but that is the motivation Jesus gives, right? Or pleasing your father or, you know, pleasing your savior, there's good consequences that come from holiness. All that to say, there's multiple motivations. See how easy it is for me to get off on subjects just by giving a book away. Okay, we're not talking about sanctification yet. That's next semester. Let's talk about the incarnation. I just want to go real briefly through the main points of proving Jesus' deity from Scripture. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to the kenosis. Kenosis is much more difficult to go through. It's kind of like the eternal begotten, but not quite as difficult as that. And these are just points. Once you know them, you know them. And I don't think anybody in this room is probably struggling with the deity of Christ. You might be. You might be someday. More than likely, you're going to run into somebody else who doesn't believe it. But this is also edifying to the believer as well. So Christ received worship as God. Only God can receive worship. And so let's look real quickly at a few of these verses. First Peter 4.11 We'll just hit these first two because they're whoops, they're right together. First Peter four eleven. Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. So Father's glorified through the Son, but the Son also belongs glory to him as well forever and ever. That can only be God. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So there's worship directly of Christ. Some, some liberals and, and people who don't believe in the deity of Christ will say, well, Jesus never worshipped in the Bible. The apostles did that later, so on and so on. But He did. He received that. People prayed to Him and Acts, you especially see that. It's not as common as praying to the Father in the Bible, so that's generally where our prayers should be directed, but we can pray to the Son. We do that here from the pulpit sometimes. Even less common 
It is praying to the Holy Spirit. But there are those who prayed to Christ. They did it in Acts 1, did it in Acts 7. Why would you pray to someone that's not God, especially as a Christian? People praised him along with the Father. So Paul does that in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. Here he's talking about worship in the church. And he, he praises Christ as God. So he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is talking about, we're not to go about getting drunk as Christians. We're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. By the way, we're to sing more than just the psalms. You'll meet especially Presbyterians who are psalms only. Sometimes just because that's what they like. Sometimes by conviction. And Paul has three different groupings of music here. Psalms, which is what we think of as the Psalms. Hymns, which are holy songs. Spiritual songs, which would be, I wouldn't call them modern Christian music because that's dangerous, but they're usually more recent songs written for the worship of the Lord. I'll put it that way. Singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. So you're to praise Christ through this. He's the Lord here, making melody with your heart to the Lord. And also in the very next verse, this is another one. He received the fear of the Lord. You can only have the fear of the Lord if he is the Lord God, Yahweh. Fear of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But look at Ephesians 5.21. This is after the singing to the Lord and worship of him, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is one, one place that the fear of Christ is mentioned, that can easily slip by us. We just read right past it. But if you understand the fear of Yahweh in the Old Testament, and now you understand that's what's behind this phrase, the fear of Christ. Some translations say reverence, but literally the word is fear here. That's the fear of Yahweh. And only Yahweh can have the fear of Yahweh. So he must be God. Again, looking at the deity of Christ here. So he received worship. People prayed to him. People praised him along with the Father. He received the fear of the Lord. He had all the divine attributes. So you'll recall if you were in my Systematic Theology 1, we went through the attributes of God. There were quite a few. All of these can be found in the Bible, in the New Testament, referencing Christ. So here I just took a screenshot or a picture. I even underlined one that I thought was interesting there in my own study. This is right from your book there in this section, page 257 if you're reading along in the textbook. And so look at all these, eternality, multiple sources here. Micah 5, 2 is in the Old Testament, but it's pointing forward to the eternal one that will come and rescue God's people. Glory, grace, holiness, immutability, life, love, mercy, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, righteousness, self-existence. What's John 1 all about? Colossians 1. They're all about how Christ is completely independent of all things. He created the world. It was through him that all things were made. Though he's not dependent on any of creation. Sovereignty, truth. So if you just go through that chart and looked up all those verses, you would see clearly that if he has the attributes of God, who, who has the attributes of God? God. No one else has these attributes. You don't have all of these. I don't have all of those. Even the ones we, we share some commonality with, we don't have them in the perfection that God does. So Christ can't just be a man if he is eternal, if he is perfectly holy, if he is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and so on. So again, a proof for 
Christ. If, if you're Jehovah's Witness or Mormon visitor to your house, wanted to sit down long enough to go through these, this would be a great Bible study. It would probably take more than an hour, but this would be great to show them. Look, the Bible itself says Jesus is God. Any questions on that before we get into a deeper subject? Okay, let's look at the kenosis. Kenosis comes from Philippians 2, 6 to 8, and it's an important passage. There, there's a really bad way to interpret this. That's called heresy. Then there's a not so good way to interpret it. That's not heresy. And then there's what the verse actually means. So let's go through it. This is more of an exegetical study of this passage because it's the only one that really focuses on what happened when Christ took on flesh. We know about the virgin birth. We know about that he came down. We know those verses. But what does that mean for him? Well, Paul now brings this up in Philippians as an example of humility. He humbled himself. How? Although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied, and that, the Greek word is kono'o. That's where we get the word kenosis. So kono'o, translated as emptied here, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by me, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's what we do in, in like the men's or women's Bible study. We ask for observations. What do you observe about this? What would you want to do some more study on? Any of these words here? What's coming up a lot in this passage? What does it mean to be emptied? Can Christ be emptied? Can God be emptied of something? What else? What else do you see? Anybody? He wants to be very clear on what the form of a slave is. He's describing the same thing three different ways, right? Form of a slave, likeness of a man, found in appearance as a man, and even humbled himself. In a sense, that's the whole point Paul's getting at here. So three to four descriptions here of the same thing. What else? What is the form of God? We better get that word form right. Yeah, because it's mentioned twice and it's parallel, right? Form of God, form of a man. And you can't change the middle of the, you can't change the definition in the middle of the verse here. Okay, what else? Those are the big ones, right? What does equality mean here? The word grasp, what does that mean? Is he, is he, is he grabbing for something? Is he trying to take something from God the Father? I mean, that's, when we see what the word typically means in other writings, it, it gets even more difficult. So, Let's just go through it line by line. I've preached a couple of times on this passage. I taught it when we went through Philippians in the Bible study. I wrote a paper on it in seminary. This one, to me, was a big eye-opener because you read definitions in a lot of the things that we, we read, and it's not real clear what's going on here. You read what's heretical, and you obviously can't go that direction. But what does it mean? It's one thing to say what it doesn't mean, but what does it mean? And this is important enough to where we, we made a change in our doctrinal statement to clarify our position here in 2022, which I'll show you if we have time today. Okay, so here's the three options. That he emptied himself of his deity. It all comes back to the word kanao, emptied. He emptied himself of his deity. He renounced the divine privileges, or this is simply describing deity taking on humanity. So let's start with the first one. And Obviously, that's going to be wrong because what I just spend the first 15 minutes of today's class proving that the deity of Christ is in Scripture and he doesn't lose that when he takes on the incarnation. All those verses we looked at were after the cross, right? Ephesians, John, so on. Okay, so verse 6, 
who although he existed in the form of God, so the, he existed as, as a bit of a, we have to translate it that way to understand it, but it literally means Christ was found being in the form of God. So it wasn't just in the past, but when, when he came to earth, he was being in the form of God, ongoing. It was present, ongoing tense. He's always been and continues to be. You don't see that in the English, but it's, it's there if you parse out the Greek verbs. So this is his pre-existence. This is his pre-incarnate existence, the pre-incarnate Christ. We looked at many verses on that in the last couple of weeks in class. The eternally existing triune God. So he existed as the second person of the Trinity. It's not in this, it's not in this verse, but we're adding language to describe it. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God in eternity past. Okay? And always will be and always has been. Okay, that's really not debated. That's what that part of the verse means. Just to look at some other verses on this. Christ always was, always is, and always will be fully God. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. He is, currently when Paul writes in Colossians, he is, present tense, the image of the invisible God. He's already come on and took on flesh. He's already died on the cross, been raised again, and ascended to the Father. So at that point, he is, and always has been, is the idea, the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John 8, 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am what? I am who? I am the eternally existing God. I am Yahweh, Exodus 3, Exodus 33, all tied back. The Jews would have known this. That's why they wanted to stone him. He didn't have to say, I'm God. All he had to say was, before Abraham was born, I am. And they understood perfectly he was claiming to be God. And then John 1, 13, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. This is John 1.1. 1, 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So clear statements all over the New Testament of his deity. This can't mean that he emptied himself of deity. Although, if you just kind of take it in its English translation, you can see where some people might come up with that. That's why when you come up with something crazy like that, you check yourself with other scriptures. Okay, that can't be it, right? Obviously. So what does it mean that he was in the form, the morphe of God? Too many times people have tried to explain the theology here without first getting into the words. The, the way you build your theology is by studying the text. The way you study the text is to interpret it rightly, looking at the words, looking at how they go together in the sentence. That's called syntax or grammar. Looking at the context of what's around it. We don't have a lot of context here because Paul's not talking systematically about the deity of Christ. He's not giving us a chapter on, you know, this is the chapter. Let me tell you all about the doctrine of Christ. He's using this as an example, like he often does, of something we should be doing. We should be humble. And Christ was humble. Look at his humility right here. He was in the form of God. He took on the form of man, so on. So we don't have a whole lot of context other than what's in these three verses. So what is morphe? That's important. What's the form of God? Because this is the state which Christ existed in before the Incarnation. How we understand this little phrase is going to determine our interpretation of the passage. If we say the form of God is the deity, then he set that aside or emptied himself. We're going to go off track here. What is the form? Some have said that this form means the nature or essence of God. Okay, That's where People say he emptied himself of the nature of the essence of God. He, he emptied himself of the Godhead. Even one translation, and they, they update this one often, but I don't know if it's still there. NIV, 
says in this verse, who being in the very nature God. Okay, that's what the, the NIV says. Christ, who being in very nature God. And so the next sentence is going to say he emptied himself of whatever that was. Okay, so in the NIV, if you follow the logic there, what changed when Christ became a man? What did he empty himself of? Well, they're, they're trying to smooth it out and add some theology in the translation to smooth it out. But in doing that, it can be read heretically, right? Who being in very nature God emptied himself of what? The nature of God. That's bad theology. So what is morphe? That's the question. What are we talking about? What is the form here? We've got to get down to the word. We can't just say, well, in English, the form is kind of what it looks like. You, you, you do a, what is it called when you make a statue? Sculpt. You sculpt a statue and there's a form to it. And that's typically what we think of. But the word can also mean outward appearance or shape. And really, I want you to focus on the outward appearance because later he's going to talk about the, the appearance of a man. So appearance is what is in focus here, not how did God look. We don't know. God doesn't look. I mean, it's God. There's only one description of how the, the Spirit looks. Not the Holy Spirit, but God who is Spirit. Christ, before he came down, had the same appearance as God the Father. That's what this verse means. In the form of God. Just translate appearance or likeness there. He had the appearance. He had the, the likeness of God the Father. Okay, well, what's, what's, what's God the Father? Are we talking about a body? Well, you'll recall our discussion on the attributes of God. God is spirit, little s, which means he's, he's a spirit. Spirit. He is spiritual, right? He does not have a body. He speaks of him not having a body. He's incorporeal. That's how you say it. Incorporeal. He does not have a body. So what's his form? What's the form that's described in the Bible when people see God? Which is really the pre-incarnate Christ, right? Majesty, light, glory. Ezekiel 1, right? Now there are times when he looks like a man, the angel of Yahweh being one of those but when they actually understand they're seeing God in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, there's this glory, there's this majesty of light. So here's in the New Testament, after, after Christ has come and ascended, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, God who possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So man has never seen God the Father. And, and just to tell you, Paul says, of what he's like, in his essence, he dwells in unapproachable light, this bright light, this glory that can't be approached. Since no one has seen him, then we realize in the Old Testament that is the pre-incarnate Christ. But in John, 1 John 1, 5, God is light. Now, yes, that speaks of holiness and moral purity, but also God in his attribute of glory is light. He is perfect, pure glorious majesty and light. So back to the question, what is the form of God that Christ had? Now, if we put all this together, it means that the manifested glory of God is, is what he had. Manifested meaning that it's seen. The intrinsic glory, which is part of his nature. What, what Daniel is describing in the, uh, the book of Daniel, when he talks about this throne room scene, what, what Ezekiel is describing, what Moses sees that makes his face shine for so long after he sees the glory of God. It's this 
intrinsic glory of God, which is then manifested. So glory is who God is. He, he is glorious, but that gets manifested as a pure light. So what's the form of God here? It should be understood as an outward manifestation, the revealing of the glory of God. If you put it all together, the appearance of God is what? Not that he has a body. It's not his deity because you, the deity itself doesn't have a shape or a form. It's simply talking about the, the appearance. And the appearance of God is his glorious majesty being shown in unapproachable light. Hebrews 1.3 talks about this, talking about Christ. He is the radiance of his glory. So the first he is Christ. The second, the, the his is God's glory. Christ is the radiance that you can see the word radiating out glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Here he is. He's got this radiance. And it's not just, you can't just say, well, that's just Christ's radiance, somehow the makeup of the deity and humanity. No, no. It's the glory of God. He has that. However, when he walked among the earth, for the most part, when he walked among us, people did not see that glory. So that's what's happening here. So he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he has this form of God. He has this appearance of the likeness and the glory of God. That's part of deity. So how can he be trying to grasp something that he already has, right? It's not, it's not Christ reaching out to grab something. He already has it, right? That's not what it's saying. We translate it here as grasp. It's a rare word in Greek. Even in all the writings we have of the ancient Greek language, it's very rare. Literally can mean robbery. So in the King James originally, it was, he did not regard equality with God as robbery, I think, which doesn't really help us understand what's going on here. Is the son trying to rob God? Why would he even, it's hard to understand. Better translated like the HCSB, which opens it up a bit. I mean, I'm okay with grasp because that's more literal. But if we want to understand the meaning here, I liked what the HCSB did. Something to be used for his own advantage. So it's not as if Christ, having the appearance of God's glory, wanted to come to earth and still have that scene. Remember when Peter wants to get the sword out and chop off ears? What does Jesus say? Like, I could call up legions of angels. Like, I'm God. I could do that. But I don't know. That's not the purpose, right? Christ could come with all of his glory and everybody would just, you know, have to do what he says and he would, they would bow down to him and so on. But that's not the plan of God and that's not how it is that he took on flesh, especially in his earthly ministry before his resurrection. So what this means is he's not trying to grasp being equal to God since he already possesses that equality. He, he doesn't need to grasp the thing that he already has, right? And so the idea here is he did not regard it, this, this glory being manifested as something that he had to go to the earth and show. Right? That's, that's where the verse is going. He took on flesh. He came as the likeness of man. He could have come as the likeness of God. He showed up in the Old Testament like that. Shows up in Revelation, we'll look at, like that. He shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus like that. But in general, that's not how he's seen. So he's not trying to keep that glory being shown. He still has the glory. It's veiled is the right language to use. And he's not going to keep that. 
when he comes and takes on flesh. So we're still not there yet. Now it says in verse 7, though, he emptied himself. So here's the big debated word, kano'o, kano'o, to make empty, but in a metaphorical sense, to render void. Okay? So if we just take a straight definition out of the Greek dictionaries, to render void. Well, the Germans and some English theologians, but started with Germans, in the 1800s, they're being very critical of the Bible. They're being critical of all these doctrines the church has always believed. And they, they start this higher criticism, looking into scripture, trying to say, well, you know, and they still do this today, liberals in America, they'll say, we've just misunderstood this for so long. Let me show you something amazing. The word means he emptied himself. He was in the form of God. Therefore, he emptied himself of the Godhead. There you go. And so they come up with what's called, based on this word, the canonic theology, or you could say canonic, but usually we pronounce it canonic theology. They say Christ limited himself in the incarnation by giving up the attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. So when Christ came to the earth, he gave up omniscience, his ability to know all things. He gave up the fact that he was in all places in his deity at all times. And then he gave up his power that he had as God which means they deny the full deity of Christ. You take away those things, less than deity, right? Some kind of half deity, I guess. They, they wouldn't describe it like that. But the, the goal here was really, behind it all, was to not deny the deity of Christ. They went on to deny the, the virgin birth and so on. German higher criticism, it came over to England, came over to America. Everybody wanted to be cool. You send your kids to the cool schools back in Germany. Very few went over there and didn't come back liberal in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So they deny the deity of Christ. We have to disagree with that because the rest of the New Testament tells us that's not what the verse means. Why? Because it confirms Christ remained fully God during his whole earthly life. He didn't become God. He didn't lose something. He didn't lose a part of God. He's still God. The verses all say that he's still God when he ascends to sit at the right hand of God the Father. So this is heretical teaching. We have to call heresy heresy. Yes. No, that's coming up. That's different. Yeah. That's not that's not that's not heretical. It's just wrong. We'll get to that. This is this is rejecting the deity of Christ. Right? The other one tries to be careful not to reject the deity of Christ. I think there's problems with that though, and we'll come to that. So this is heretical, right? Such such a belief is only helpful in sending people to hell. If you want to send people to hell, then convince them that Jesus is not God. But you shouldn't be doing that, Christian. But there are people out there who do that. Bart Ehrman would be a big candidate. He produces many books. When I first thought it would be a good idea to start reading books, when I became Reformed, I went to the bookstores, both used and brand new. And who's all over the shelves? Bart Ehrman, right? Misquoting Jesus was the big one. Now, now his newest one is Jesus became God. When Jesus became God. And he tries to show that the apostles pretty much made Jesus God in their writings that he wasn't before that, or that God adopted him is what they were teaching, adoptionism, as the son of God. We'll come to that next week with wrong beliefs, errors when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. So we can scratch that one, right? That's in red. Empty. He did not empty himself of deity. How can, how can he save us if he's not God, right? It's God doing the work 
of justifying God. He is the judge and the justifier, and the Son of God is the one on the cross, and it's not just man. That's, that's what Muslims believe. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe. All right, the other two left. So the one that Donald just mentioned is this second one, renunciation of divine privileges. So let's now look at that. So it's, it's, it's a conservative view. It's not a liberal. We have to be discerning, right? We can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. They disagree with me, so they're heretical. I mean, that's not a way to be a Christian, right? There are certain things that are heretical that we cannot tolerate. And there are other things that are just not as clear. Maybe they are difficult to understand. I think all of these describe this view. They're, they're difficult to understand. They're not clear. Or they don't best describe the passage and can lead someone to think wrongly about the deity of Christ. So here's the view. It's that the emptying was the setting aside of his attributes to operate fully under the Holy Spirit. So really, to be more clear, it's a setting aside of his use, his independent use of his attributes to operate fully under the Holy Spirit's power. So this is that Christ and his ministry did all of his miracles through the Holy Spirit only and not the Son of God actually doing any of those by his own power. So he's doing it through the Spirit's power, much like Paul or Peter or or some of the apostles would have done miracles. So here's how they describe it. He set aside the voluntary display of his divine attributes and submitting himself to the Spirit's direction. Did anybody see that in the book? I want to ask if anybody read the section. Where is it? It's in there. First sentence, page 258. In his incarnation, Christ voluntarily yielded the independent exercise of his divine attributes to the will of his heavenly Father. Okay? But now later, what I'm about to show you on view number three, they also have in the same section. And I'll just read that to you. His eternal divine glory was still present, though temporarily veiled by him being in the form of a servant. So that's view two and three that I just showed you. They're both in this chapter. I'll show you why in a minute. Okay, so this view, it's different than the heretics. The heretical teachings, Jesus lost some of his divinity, that he lost it. Here, though, we're talking about Christ still having those attributes. They're just not being used. He he set aside the use of them, okay? He decided not to use them, is the idea. And that would be the idea that Paul is bringing out here. Look, Christ, he came, he took on flesh. He did not use these things that he could have used with all of his divine attributes. He set them aside in the sense that he set them aside when it comes to his independent use of them. So the form of God they would say, was merely his godlike attributes. There, they're taking the form of God theologically, not based really on any word studies here, but it's more of the, what do the other passages of the Bible say? Let's bring them to this passage. The form of God is his attributes being set aside. Okay, but the Greek word for form is never used as privileges. Sometimes you'll, use, you'll hear the word prerogatives. Prerogatives is like the, the privilege to, to do something, to exercise a right. You never see that word in conjunction with privileges or prerogatives anywhere else in Greek. So it's going to seem strange, I think, for Paul to use it like that here, especially when he's doing this comparison between God and man, right? The appearance of God, the appearance of man. That's where the the contrast is. It's not the prerogatives or the, the use of his attributes, but it's the appearance that is under discussion. So if Christ set aside his divine attributes at any time, then I, I, I would say, and many theologians would say, you know, you're getting close to saying he ceased to be God. That's not what they're saying. It's not what we were saying when we had this in our doctrinal statement. But you could see where you could go that direction if he's setting them aside, even 
and his independent use of them. So could not serve as the God-man then who died in our place on the cross. John Gill, the Baptist pastor who was before Spurgeon a few generations, every perfection of deity was asserted by him in his state of humiliation. So let's keep going with this discussion then. Did Christ set aside the use of his divine attributes? Well, the only one we can really come up with that's even close is Mark 13, 32, or Luke 2, 52, okay? So let's look at those. And I'm not going to do an exposition on those, but that's, that, that would be it for the evidence. And that, that's pretty slim. I think we'd be going too far to say he set aside the divine use of his attributes whenever, or the use of his divine attributes whenever this is all that's being said. Especially when we have this deity, humanity, hypostatic union of Christ. So let's look first of all at Mark 13.32. I had a, a pastor who's a newer pastor. He's preaching through Mark and he just emailed me. He said, what, what, do, you, what do you do with Mark 13.32? And he had read something Mike Riccardi had put up on the social media a few weeks ago. And I said, well, I've got a couple sermons on that very subject. So not Mark 13.32, but this idea that Christ did not know for certain does that mean he set aside his independent use of his privileges? So it's Mark 13, 32. You're probably familiar with this. It's that, but of that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. Okay, so what's happening here is he's saying, at that moment, he does not know. But God knows all things, and he's still God, right? So he didn't set aside the deity. So the best we can do here is just saying that his, in his humanity, he did not know, right? His, his, it was not revealed to his humanity, the day nor the hour. You can't erase something from his deity. So you can't say God, the, the son, forgot something or wiped it out of his memory or it was hidden. His humanity, though, did not know it. And it's the same, really, we get this even better in Luke 2.52. If you go to Luke 2.52... And Jesus was advancing. Notice the word Jesus here. So often the names are important. Not always, but they're always important, but they're not always making an emphasis. Here he uses the, the human name, Jesus, was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How can God, the Son, advance in favor with God the Father if we're just talking about deity? How does God, the deity, who knows all things, advance in wisdom? Now, stature, okay, that's his humanity, right? That's his, that's his, either his physical stature or his stature with other people, meaning his recognition of his wisdom by other people. Regardless, all this is talking about him growing up as a child. It's talking about his humanity. So I think Mark 13, 32 is the same as Luke 2, 52. It's focused on his humanity. In his humanity, he did not know that. And you could say, I mean, if you wanted to get technical, which is dangerous when, it talk, when you're talking about the hypostatic union, but that his deity veiled it from his humanity. And that probably would even need to be parsed out. But he did not know in his humanity of the day or hour. He's growing in his humanity and stature and wisdom. That's it for setting aside his divine attributes. And I don't think that's setting aside his divine attributes. I think that's just the humanity, right? In his humanity, he went into the desert and got tempted by Satan. Can God the son be tempted by Satan? No. But in his humanity, he's, he's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. The angels have to come minister to him after Satan leaves. He's at his weak point in his humanity. 
All right, so the New Testament has then multiple verses where Christ used his divine powers. There are some that says the Spirit did it, and there are some that says he did it. Who raised the Son? Did he raise himself, or did the Father raise him? The, the Bible says both, depending on the verse, right? E- even more difficult is in his omnipresence, he was not completely with his omniscience set aside. His omniscience was not completely set aside. Okay? How is that? How, omnipresence, sorry. I was distracted. Omnipresence was not completely set aside. Which means his human body is there, but his deity is still everywhere. Right? That's what Hebrews 1 is about. He upholds all things. He upholds all things. So you can't say, well, he, he set that aside. No, I mean, Sure, in the presence of Jesus, you have his special presence. Just like in heaven, you have the Father's special presence, right? God's special presence is in heaven. Doesn't mean he's not present everywhere. Doesn't mean he's not present in, in hell to punish. But his, his special presence to bless is in heaven. And by the way, that continues, right? Even though his body is at the right hand of the Father, and we could say his, his special presence in the sense to bless the heavenly beings, those who've already gone to heaven and, and the angels and so on, he still upholds all things. Some, some people, Lutheran theologians, and we probably won't come to this because it's a little bit more, more detail than books like this go into you, but it's called the extra Calvinistic because Calvin wrote a lot about it, but it's been believed for a long time that even though Christ's body is there, his humanity, his, his person is there, he's still omnipresent all over right now. All right, so there it is, Hebrews 1 through, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Not he did uphold all things, but he is now holding up all things after his resurrection and ascension. Okay, so regarding omniscience, here's what John said. He knew all men. Jesus knew all men, and he knew what was in man. Not by the Spirit's power, but he knew that, because he's God is the idea. John, especially in chapters 1 and 2 of John, they're focused on his deity. A recurring thing in Luke also, where Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking before they said it. Now, there are times when I said the Spirit is attributed to what he's doing miraculously. And he even says, if you deny he's doing these things by the Holy Spirit, that's the unforgivable sin. But there's a lot of times where the emphasis is on Jesus himself doing it. Jesus clearly exhibited powers over the natural world, his healing, his control over weather. And as has already been mentioned, there were flashes of his glory. Right now, this this I'm I'm bringing up not to to show to say that's what the thing that was veiled is, although that's true, but just to show you that that's coming from him. It's not the Spirit giving him the the glory being seen on the transfiguration. And I think John eighteen six as well as possible, the guards come to arrest him. Right, where's this Jesus? He says, "I am," and they just fall down. Now maybe he knocked them down with his omnipotent power. But I, I think there is some kind of, he says, I am, and then boom, they all fall. And then they get up and arrest him like nothing happened. Anyway, John 18, 6, I mean, it doesn't say anything about his glory there, but something strange is going on that John wants us to be amazed at. All right, we're still in Philippians 2. I'm just, I'm betting out this view here. So I would say Jesus did not lose or even set aside certain attributes. The point of this passage in Philippians 2 is that in coming from the glorious state of existing as fully God, he came to the earth as God-man. So he didn't lose anything. That's what we'll look at with the, the incarnation. He took on something. He took on flesh. He doesn't lose anything from, 
from being God. Nothing is subtracted. Something is added. And you really can't add to God, so it's not quite the, the one plus one idea. But he takes on flesh. How do we know that? Well, he grew inside. We'll, we'll probably look at the virgin birth, which is really a virgin conception. Next week, he grew inside the womb of Mary. Came out of the birth canal just like babies do, right? He was placed in a manger. He lived a fully human life, except when he manifested his power. That's not normal, right? We as humans don't just knock people down with our glory or have our face shining. I mean, that's manifestation of his divine power. But other than that, he looked just like anybody walking in the Middle East of his day. So I put this in green because I don't think it's, it's not the same as number one, obviously. That's language that's been around 100 years or so. To try, it really was an answer to the canonic theologians. What are we going to say this verse means? They're saying it means he got rid of his deity. What does it mean? And so it's a, it's a theological answer for that. I think number three, though, it, while it might sound simplistic, is not. It is, it's the closest. It's what most conservative scholars who are doing uh, exegesis of Philippians 2 arrive at. And I think based on the text itself, that's the best answer. So it says, but, so that's the contrast. He, he existed. He always is, always was, always will be in the form of God, but especially the appearance is what we're looking at with the word form there, right? He had his glory being seen by everyone in heaven, by some of the people in the Old Testament that saw it. Now, again, it was veiled occasionally as well there, but that was not by the flesh. It was veiled more like the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus don't know it's Jesus. Something has gone on there where God made sure they, they couldn't recognize him. Jesus is walking with them. He teaches them, and then boom, they, they, they can suddenly see that it's Jesus, and he disappears. Back to Philippians 2.7, he became a slave. That's the translation here. It says servant. I know every other translation says servant. LSB went back to the uh, doulos, the original, and said this should be slave. Yes, he is a servant of God, because how can God be a servant of God? But Paul's trying to get you to realize Jesus humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. He was in this form where everybody could see his glory, right? His glory was manifested. And he took on this form, which is the lowest, right? He, he descended. He lowered himself for us in the sense of taking on the form of a slave. The, the form, the idea is the, the form of a manhood humanity. He was a slave in the fact that he served, the son served the father in the flesh, and also he served others. That's the purpose he came. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. That's hard to translate slave on those cases of doulos, because you would say, for even the son of man did not come to be slaved, but to slave and to give himself. We, we don't have a verb for slave. We have enslaved but that's not the right idea. So it's harder to translate doulos and the verb associated with it into uh, slave in the verb sense. So usually you'll still see serve in a few cases. Back to the verse here. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made. What, what, is it, what is a slave? What's the form of a slave, Paul? The appearance, okay, the appearance of a slave. What does that look like? He tells us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. By being made in the likeness of men. What's the likeness of men? Again, we're back to this idea of likeness. It's not just that he took on flesh. 
but that he was in the likeness of God, glorious majesty. Now he's in the likeness of man when he took on flesh. So he took on the outward appearance of that slave, that servant of man, who is a, who is a slave of God, man who is upon the earth. He took on the form of a slave. That's the appearance, the likeness of man, the human nature which corresponds to that. The likeness of men. Not just that he, like the Muslims say, he appeared to look like a man. No, he, he actually took on humanity and he looked like a man is the idea. He didn't look like God. He looked like man. So we, we try to make this really complex and get all theological, but it boils down to he looked like God. He took on flesh. He looked like man. That's the very simple, what they could teach, probably one of these lower classes here, maybe the seven to nine-year-old, right? He looked like God when you saw him. Then he took on flesh and walked among us, and he looked like a man. It's not really that, that difficult to conceive. Paul goes on, though. It's almost as if he wants to make sure we get it right, being found in an appearance as a man. Well, of course, you just said he looks like a man. He's the likeness of men, right? Well, he's going to do something with verse 8. He's going to take it on to the cross. But look at this. Form of a slave. What is that? The likeness of men. What is that? Found in appearance as a man. So when people looked at him, all they saw at first was man. Right? An average Jewish man of the first century. Isaiah 53. He has no stately form. There's that word again. Or majesty. That we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. The Jews would say when Christ comes that he just looks, he doesn't look like God. He looks like all of us. He doesn't even look like a king. Like he doesn't even look like King David we thought should have looked like. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Here, here's what they said in his hometown. Is this not Jesus? He's, he's the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know. How does he now say I've come down out of heaven? How does he say he's the son of God come from heaven? We know this. He grew up here. He's a Joseph's little boy, you know. He used to play with my kids when they were young. I mean, this is just Joseph and his wife's son. So there's no setting aside of attributes in this passage. It's not mentioned. Let me read it to you again. Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's nothing about setting aside anything here. It's simply he had one appearance, then he had a different appearance when he took on flesh. So I'm going with the blue, number three, deity taking humanity. And, and particularly the emptying there is simply the, that he no longer had that likeness when he took on flesh. He had veiled the majesty. He didn't lose the, the glory and the majesty. He veiled it so they couldn't see it. So here's our old doctrinal statement. We teach that the incarnation... This is part of it, right in the middle of where we're talking about God. We teach that the incarnation, God becoming man, that Christ surrendered only the prerogatives of his deity, but nothing of the divine essence, either in degree or kind. In his incarnation, the eternally second person of the Trinity accepted all the essential characteristics of humanity, so became the God-man. And then if you skip down a few paragraphs, so we talk, first of all, in the second section there, we talk about he represents humanity and deity and invisible oneness, okay? And then the virgin birth, and then the, the fourth paragraph there speaks of his right to the full prerogatives of coexistence. So again, it's a lot of this prerogatives, privileges idea, and, and even that he surrendered 
I didn't mark that one at the top, that he surrendered only the prerogatives of the deity. So we copied the Master's Seminary Grace Community Church doctrinal statement. We did make a, a few of our own changes in other parts, but this was there. And about a year out, I'm studying this passage, and I wrote a paper on this in seminary. And it was based on what one of my professors said about the meaning of the word morphe, and he worked through the passage similar to I did, one of my professors at Master's. So I'm going to preach this, and so I preached it, and I'm just, I'm preaching it to the church thinking we need to change our doctrinal statement to make it more clear, because this is not the best language to use. It's not heretical. Maybe we try to protect against those views up there. Nothing of the divine essence is given up, either in a degree or a kind. But it could be clear, particularly with what the words in the verse mean. And uh, so I preached on it again, just getting the congregation ready. As elders, you know, we have to make that decision and, and work on this. And finally, that was like 2021, I think, or maybe it was 2020. I had some language that I wrote out and I ran it by a couple of professors at the seminary, Mike Riccardi being one of them. And he tells me, oh, well, just here's the language we use when we changed our doctrinal statement last year. I'm like, why don't you guys tell us that? Okay. So we took mostly that, but I, I added a few phrases that he had helped me with as well. So here's what we changed it to. It's a little longer now. So I got to put it on two slides. We teach that in the incarnation, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, without altering his divine nature or surrendering any of his divine attributes. Okay, notice the, the emphasis there now. While never ceasing to be fully God or ceasing to be equal in essence with the Father, made himself of no reputation by taking on full human nature, consubstantial with our own, yet without sin. So stronger language there about not setting aside anything and then interpreting the passage of Philippians 2 along with a couple of Hebrews verses that he is fully co-equal with the Father. The point is he made himself of no reputation by taking on a full human nature. Now there are other reasons he took on a human nature, but when it comes to what's going on in Philippians 2, we're just looking at that he didn't set anything aside, but he did it. He, he had no reputation. He, he did not show up and everybody just flocked to him. The glorious baby who shines this wonderful light, right? We got more on the virgin birth here in the second paragraph. We teach that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, thus born of a woman, so that the whole perfect and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were joined together in one person without confusion, change, division, or separation. He is therefore very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So that's just more description of the hypostatic union before it was the second paragraph was one little sentence, okay? So at the bottom, we teach that in his incarnation, Christ fully possessed his divine nature, attributes, and prerogatives. Still using that language, prerogatives just means the ability to exercise his, his attributes. The word isn't a problem. It's how it was being used to say he set them aside. He fully possessed them. He's got them all. He didn't set anything aside. However, in the state of his humiliation, so I continue here, in the state of his humiliation, here's Philippians 2, he did not always fully express the glories of his majesty, concealing them behind the veil of his genuine humanity. So Philippians 2 is about a, a concealing of the majesty and taking on human flesh, not a getting rid of anything or, or even setting aside anything. Now, I think that language is, is problematic. According to his human nature, he acts in submission to the Father. So that's addressing another controversy that we may look at later. When did the Son submit to the Father? By the power of the Holy Spirit, 
he did this while, according to his divine nature, he acts by his authority. So it's not just the spirit, but he, he himself acts as his authority and power as the eternal son. Before Christ's incarnation, his eternal divine glory was clearly manifested in heaven. So before he takes on flesh, his glory is manifested. After the incarnation, during his earthly ministry, so this is talking just in time, his internal divine glory was still present, though temporarily veiled by being in the form of a servant. At his resurrection, he maintained his human form, but has also restored to him the external manifestation of his glory. And an example of that would be Revelation 1, or an example of that would be Paul on the road to Damascus. So this is just a good, re you know, doctrinal statements aren't infallible. And I wouldn't say ours had heretical stuff. It just needed to be more clear. It needed to be more clear based on what the passage means. And so that's been upgraded. All right. Any questions? I know that was a lot. Kind of nerdy, exegetical type stuff. Nobody wants to touch that, huh? Philippians re rejoicing, rejoicing in our, in our common salvation and all that we have in Christ. Yeah. So in, in doing that, we should be humble to others and know that they're, you know, we're in the same body here. And so can't we humble ourselves when we disagree with somebody or don't like somebody? Look at Christ. His main emphasis there is more along the lines of he's in heaven with the Father. And look what he did. He came to the earth and took on flesh. That's humility. And that's the way we need to think and follow his example. Yeah. All right, we're over time. So let's conclude. It's been a good class. Next week, we pick up with a virgin birth. We're going to look at errors. So we're going to get into all the heresies. Got some fun slides for that. Bad heresies on the doctrine of Christ. Lord, thank you so much for our time this morning in class. We do pray that you would bless what we've learned. Help us to understand these doctrines better, to know the scriptures, to interpret and apply them in our life, in our mind, in our evangelism, in our apologetics. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.